All right, Romans 15, starting in verse 7, reading through 13. Paul writes, Therefore, receive one another just as, you, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, uh, just a recap from last week. Last week we looked at the first six verses of chapter 15 uh, as Paul continues his discussion on the topic of Christian liberty where he talks about how the strong ought to bear with the weak, how they ought to bear with the scruples or the infirmities, the weaknesses of the weak, and how Christians then should relate in the church. That's what this overall section is from beginning in chapter 14 all the way to verse 15 of uh, verse 13 of chapter 15. Paul really is just discussing how we are to relate in the church. It's one main thought, namely proper attitudes among Christians in the church. Given that the church of Jesus Christ is this mixture of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, uh, there will inevitably be some friction, right? Whenever you gr- bring a group of disparate people together, you're going to have friction as you sort of clash with your backgrounds, your nationalities, your, your ethnicities, and all these things, your beliefs. So there's inevitably going to be some friction. And if you really think about it, if you just kind of stop and take a moment to think about it, this institution of the church, how amazing is it really? Right? Because all other institutions that people join, typically they join because they have some affinity with one another over some thing, right? So you join you know, a reading club because you like to read and discuss books, or you join FFA or whatever it is you join because you have some kind of affinity with other people in this area. But the church really is something that God builds up, right? It's something that God brings together. He calls people. Jesus says he builds his church. And he does so by bringing sort of a ragtag bunch of people together and bringing them into one body and then by his spirit says, okay, now work together, right? Now, if this were any other human institution, it would fall apart. Yet God in his infinite wisdom formed this institution by his Holy Spirit. Now you have in the first century in particular, you have this mixture of Jew and Gentile. And there's probably no two disparate groups of people that you could try to merge together into one body than Jew and Gentile. Because to the Jew, there was just Jews and everybody else, and everybody else were Gentiles. So, you know, that's just a word that they use for someone who is not Jewish. Yet God brings us together. So the differing backgrounds and customs would be an issue. So Paul then, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes Romans 14 and 15, to help this group of believers navigate the waters of dealing with the issues that you get from 
rubbing shoulders with people who are different from you in the church. Now, if we're not living by the Spirit, if we're not walking according to the Spirit, then you get cases where those with strong consciences look down on those who have the weaker conscience and despise those whose conscience isn't fully formed or informed. And then the flip side, you get those who have the weaker conscience, they look at the stronger Christian and they pass judgment on them, doing things that they think is sinful. And then we end up tearing, up, tearing down instead of building up. The, G, the church is something that Christ is building up, yet when we differ over these things that are non-essential, these things that really we should have no business disagreeing on, we tear down what Christ is building up. And the point Paul is trying to make in these verses and these passages is that each of us is a work in progress. Right? Some of us are a little further along. Some of us are not as far along. Some of us are very far along. Some of us are still at the beginning. We are all works in progress, and it is Christ who is bringing these people along. So as fellow believers, we should not then try to tear down what Christ is building up. So Paul then urges us that we should be like-minded. Not same-minded, but like-minded. We need to be thinking on the same page. We need to be moving forward in the same direction. We need to be having the same goals in mind. Now, as is usual, as we saw last week too, the one who is in the stronger position, the one whose conscience is stronger, is the one who is then called to lay aside those privileges for the benefit of the weaker brother. Because that's what Christ did. That's what we saw last week. That example of Jesus Christ who laid aside every prerogative that He had. And He had every prerogative. If there was anyone who could claim His rights, anyone who could claim His privileges, it was Jesus Christ. Yet, He laid all that aside for us. So then how much more then should we then, who are stronger in the faith, who have stronger consciences, lay aside our freedom, our liberty, for the sake of a weaker brother to come alongside them and usher them forward in their faith? It's what Christ did, and it's what we must do as well. So as we look at these final seven verses, as we said earlier, that this closes out the main body of the book of Romans. Again, after this point, uh, Paul just starts talking about day-to-day things, his travel plans, his greetings to the, to the believers there. And there are a few nuggets here and there in these verses, but really it's just sort of like the stuff you put at the end of a letter. <laughs> right after you've said everything you want to say, then you start saying, well, I'll say hello to Aunt Mabel, and oh, by the way, how's, you know, how's your leg doing? You know, I heard you had surgery, so on and so forth. You put all that stuff at the end before you, say, you, know, before you sign off. But the practical section here of Romans, starting all the way back in 12 verse 1 to 15 verse 3, this ends that section. And the main point of these verses here is that Jesus Christ is the hope of both Jew and Gentile. He is the one who is the hope for all people. And Paul begins first by concluding, though, the argument that he has made ever since Romans 14.1. As we look here now at verse 7. Verse 7 reads, Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us, to the glory of God. Now you've got that word, therefore. What does that tell you? What does it point to? points back what he's just said. Therefore, he is concluding 
an argument. He is inclu- he's concluding what he has just talked about in the first six verses of chapter 15. Really, he's concluding everything he's spoken of going all the way back to chapter 14, verse 1. So the therefore points back to what he has previously said. And then moreover, you have there in that verse, receive one another. Now, I don't know if it's on the same page, but if you look at 14, chapter 14, verse 1, it starts, receive one who is weak in the faith. And then in verse 13 of chapter 15, you've got receive one another. So you've got those bookends. All right, not 13, sorry, verse 7 of chapter 15. You've got those bookends. He starts off the section, receive one another. He ends the section, receive one another. So it's suggesting that this is one unit of thought. And Paul wants now to stress uh, that which he has been stressing all along. These issues of secondary matters, these non-essentials. Or if you remember that word I taught you that means the non-essentials? Okay, (laughs) A-something. So, A something with a foria, adiaphora. <laughs> Lyndon, I'm impressed. <laughs> adiaphora, yes. <laughs> the non essentials. These things should not break our Christian fellowship with one another. They really shouldn't. So, Christians need to receive one another. That word, receive is proslumbano. It means to take to oneself. So you, it's, it's a compound word. You take and you're, you're taking it to yourself. So you're receiving something. And it's the same word that Paul used in chapter 14, verse 1, and chapter 14, verse 3, where he says, receive one who is weak in the faith, uh, or you know, do not despise the one who eats. Let, him not, uh, let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. So he has welcomed him in. He has brought him into his circle. That's what the word means here. So we are to receive one another. Why? Because Christ has also received us to the glory of God. Now how has Christ received us? Well, consider the following. Christ has received us by leaving the glories of heaven, by leaving the glories of being at the right hand of God the Father, by leaving the glories of being in that face-to-face relationship with the Father for all eternity, He has left that perfect communion to come down to us. He, come, he came into our existence. He humbled Himself as, and took on the form of a servant. And He took on all of our weaknesses, all of our infirmities, all of the things that make us human except for sin. So He who knew no hunger, hungered. He who knew no thirst, thirsted. He who knew, uh, who knew no fatigue got tired. He who never tasted death, he died. And he did all of these things for us, his bride. He died for us, bearing the weight of our guilt for sin. So that's one, another way he has received us. And he gave to us, according to Romans 5, verse 2, he gave us access to God. Right? If you remember back in Romans 5, where he says, Now, therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have access to God. That's another thing that Christ has done to receive us. He says, I have access to God. Now I've received you into myself. Now you all have access to God who are in me. So if Jesus did all of this to receive us to himself, how hard is it really to receive a brother or sister in Christ who disagrees with us over non-essential things? 
right? There should be no arguments over vegetables. Right, Fred? No arguments over vegetables. Because Christ has received us. These are not things to disagree upon. These are not things to tear down the church. Yet, you see this far too often in many churches. We tear down churches because of the silliest things. The silliest things. These ought not to be things that we divide over. It's really what it all boils down to. Do you, really want to. do you really want to be the one who goes before God on Judgment Day and when God asks you, why didn't you welcome Bill? Or why didn't you welcome Sally into your communion? And you, you, you really want to be that person that goes up and says, well, it's because Bill ate meat and I don't like people who eat meat. Or, or Sally uh, celebrated a certain day and I really don't like people who celebrate that day. Do you really want to be that person before the judgment seat of God who asked, when He asks you why you didn't do that to give those lame answers to Him? I certainly don't want to be that person that goes before God and does that. Christ received us to the glory of God. All of us. Those who are strong in the faith. Those who are weak in the faith. Those who are further along in their progression. Those who are a little further back. We are all moving at a pace. We are all progressing. We just progress at different paces. We're all being sanctified. We're just sanctified in different rates. And Christ has received all of us. That's why in Galatians 3.28, Paul can say, At in Christ there is what? No male, no female, no Jew, no Gentile, no slave, no free, no Greek, no barbarian, so on and so forth. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Any demographic you, ha- you wish to divide the church into, we are all part of the body of Christ. On verse 7, Charles Spurgeon had this to say, Christ did not receive us because we were perfect. He did not receive us because He could see no fault in us or because He hoped to gain some somewhat at our hands. In other words, Christ didn't receive us in order to, you know, because He thought we would benefit Him some way, Right? But He received us in loving condescension, covering our faults, and seeking our good. He welcomed us into His heart. And God is glorified, therefore, when we receive one another as Christ has received us. Now Paul continues uh, to show how our Lord and Savior Jesus exemplified this attitude that the Apostle expects from all of us in verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. So the first way Jesus exemplifies this mindset of welcoming one another into the body of Christ is by becoming a servant to the circumcision. Now when he says the circumcision, to whom is he referring? Jewish people, right. So he became a servant to the, to the Jews. Now, many times through the Gospels, Jesus highlights that fact that He came to serve primarily the lost sheep of Israel. We see this in Matthew 15, 24. In Matthew, you don't need to turn there. You can turn there if you want. I'm not telling you you can't turn there. but In Matthew 15, 24, Jesus says here, but He answered, this is to the woman who, uh, the Syrophoenician woman who comes and asks Jesus, Jesus answers her in verse 24, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Jesus came to be a servant to the circumcision. Or in Acts 3, 26. Acts chapter 3, verse 26. This is Peter. Now, Peter is at the temple. He's on the steps of the temple and he's preaching after they healed that lame man who was sitting there on the steps. And in verse 26, he's speaking to a group of Jewish people. Peter says, To you first, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Jesus was a servant to the circumcision. And He was because He was the long-awaited Messiah. He was the promised One of Israel to come and redeem them from their sins. And we see this in so many Old Testament texts. Now note that Jesus here says had become a servant to the circumcision. That word servant in the Greek is the word diakonos from which we get deacon. Now, this is not servant like when Paul says, I am a servant of Christ. He uses the word doulos, which means slave. I am a slave of Christ. Jesus says he is a servant. He is one to minister. That can even minister. So just like I am an ordained minister of the RCOS, thus not only am I a slave of Christ, but now I am a servant to all of you. I come, my goal is to serve all of you. But even more importantly, Jesus is Lord, right? He's King of kings and Lord of lords, yet He, is, he comes to be a servant. And this is the idea that Jesus tries to get across, is that this idea of leadership, His way of leadership, is a servant leadership. Mark 10.45 says, He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. I mean, how many times did Jesus teach in His parables where He says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, right? This is the idea. If you, if you have a position of authority or a position of power over somebody, it is not Christianly to lord that over somebody. That's what the Gentiles do. That's what Jesus says. The Gentile leaders, they lord it over their, their subjects. You need to be a servant. What is the best, what is the best example we see of Jesus' servant leadership in the Gospels. Washing the feet, exactly. That was something that not only a servant did, that was like the lowest position, right? I mean, even the servants would find somebody to go wash the feet, right? So you'd get the lowest of the servants, yet Jesus, when He sees His disciples disputing and arguing amongst themselves who is the greatest of us, Jesus then sets aside His his rabbiness and takes a towel and bends down and starts washing the dirty feet of his disciples. Servant leadership. Servant leadership. So Jesus became a servant, a minister to the Jewish people. And he did so for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. In other words, again, Jesus' coming is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises to the Jewish people. He is the seed of the woman that was promised way back in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David that we see at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel being the one that is most directly uh, written to the Jewish people. He starts off his Gospel by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David, thereby connecting Jesus Christ to the two 
two of the greatest people in Old Testament history, Abraham and David. Abraham, the father of the faithful, David, the great king. And he's saying, Jesus comes as the son of both of those. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And we could say more and more about Jesus, how he fulfills all of these Old Testament prophecies. He confirms all the promises that God made to the Jewish people of old. All these promises are come and they have their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And he comes to serve the Jewish people. But these promises weren't made to the Jews only. Look at the first half of verse 9. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So Jesus came not only to be a servant to the, to the Jewish people, but also so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations, right? You know, what is that little campfire song, right? Hide, you, know, you know, this little light of mine, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it, hide it under a bushel. What's the response? No way, right? Hide it under a bushel. No way. Let the light shine. Israel was to be that light to the world. They were to show how people living in a covenant community with God can be blessed by God and how God would bless His people and and show overflowing love and mercy and kindness to them. And then that would be attractive to the the other nations and they would come and want to be part of the, the covenant community. As the ladies know, we're going through the book of Ruth. And Ruth, the Moabitess, what does she say to, to Naomi as Naomi tries to send her away? She says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She wants to come into the Jewish people because the light was shining into the world. In fact, that's what God promised to Abraham. That in you, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just the Jewish people. All the families of the earth will be blessed. In fact, when Jesus gives his I am the good shepherd speech in John chapter 10, which we will get to, I don't know when, (laughs) some point, Lord willing, (laughs) when we get there in John chapter 10. But in John chapter 10, when he gives the I am the good shepherd speech, in verse 16 he says, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Because earlier on, Jesus says, My sheep, what? Hear my voice, and they follow me. Now, I've been told, I don't know this, but I've been told that sheep can actually identify the voice of their particular shepherd and will actually respond to that voice. Now, having a dog, I know a dog responds to our voice. Even my, heck, even my cat responds to my voice. That's amazing because cats are you know, notoriously untrainable. But the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd and they follow him. And then Jesus says, I've got other sheep that are not of this fold, meaning other sheep who are not Jewish. They will hear my voice and they will come and there will be one flock Not two flocks, not the Jewish flock and then the Gentile flock. One flock with one shepherd over them. 
So Jesus came for the lost sheep of Israel, but there are also other sheep he has which are not of this fold. These would be the Gentiles, and God, through Jesus Christ, shows mercy to these sheep from another fold, and they will also come and glorify God. And when it's all said and done, if you remember from Revelation, our study in Revelation, that vision that John has in chapter 7, that great multitude before the throne praising God, that's what we'll see eventually. That, full, that full, will come to fulfillment where this great multitude that no one can number of every tribe, tongue, and nation will glorify God and glorify the Lamb who was slain from before the beginning of time. Now, it's been mentioned before, but the Old Testament Scriptures are not silent when it comes to the expanding of the people of God to include the Gentile nations. We've looked at various verses before. Romans is littered with Old Testament references and citations as Paul brings the Old Testament Scriptures to bear on the people. And here he's going to do so again in verses, the second half of verse 9 all the way through 12. Paul sort of rapid fire shoots out four citations from the Old Testament covering really all the main categories. What are the main categories of the Old Testament? Do you, do you remember what they are? The general broad categories of the Old Testament? You got the law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay, that's how the, that's how the Jewish people separated their scriptures, how they divided it. So you had the law, the first five books of Moses. You had the prophets, which would include pretty much anything from Joshua all, through, all the way through the writing prophets. And then you had the writings, so things like Psalms, Proverbs, uh, I think Ruth and Esther are included in that as well. Uh, those would be the, the writings. So those are the three main categories. And Paul here, was gonna, he's going to quote from each section to show that this idea that the Gentiles were to be included in the people of God. And we see that first one here is in uh, verse 15 the second half of verse uh, 9, chapter 15 here, where he says, As it is written, For this reason I will confess you, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Now this is taken from Psalm 1849. It's also taken from 2 Samuel 22.50. Really, it's the same thing. Because in 2 Samuel 22, uh, David sings a psalm. And it's the same, it's the same words as Psalm 18. And it's written, it says in the heading, that this is when uh, David was finally delivered from all of his enemies. He writes and sings Psalm 18. So that's the context. He has been delivered from all of his enemies. And here he just sings a word of praise and thanksgiving for what, how God has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Saul, the Philistines, all of these people. And then he gives thanks and praise. And he also says here, that he, because of all of this, I'm going to confess your name to the Gentiles. I'm going to praise your holy name to the Gentiles for the way you have delivered me. So he gives this praise and it's proclaimed to all the Gentile nations. Thus, the Gentiles will hear the wonders of, of God and will want to be brought into the covenant community. The second passage now comes from the law in verse 10 where Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. So in verse 10 he says, And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. 
Now, it's right. This is, this is the song of Moses, okay? Deuteronomy 32 is the song of Moses. And it's right before the people get ready to enter into the promised land and Moses is about to die, right? So if you remember, Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land because he got angry uh, in, at the waters of Meribah and he struck the rock instead of just speaking to the rock. So he got, uh, he got angry and God told him, he says, you're not going to enter the promised land. And it's right before Moses is about to be taken up and die. Moses sings this song in the hearing of all the people and he proclaims the greatness of God and how he has delivered the people from bondage and slavery in Egypt and is bringing them now faithfully to the promised land as God has always said he would do. And then Moses finishes the song with what you see here. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So here Moses is now inviting the Gentile nations to come and rejoice with us because God is faithful. God delivers his people. God protects his people. Third passage is also taken from the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 117, verse 1. That's the shortest psalm in the Psalter. It's only two verses long. And it comes two psalms right before the longest (laughs) uh, psalm in the Psalter, which is Psalm 119. But here in in Psalm 117, I'm I'm actually going to turn to it because it's, it's useful. So here in Psalm 117... We don't know who the psalmist is. It might be David. Uh, There's no title that gives us the indication who wrote it. But the psalmist says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud Him, all you peoples. Why? For His merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So now the psalmist here exhorts all the nations, all the Gentiles, that when you... Typically, whenever you see the word Gentile in the Old Testament, it's translating the, the, the Hebrew word goyim, or goy, which means nations, or Gentile. Basically, it's everybody else, right? right? It's like you've got Jew and everybody else. So the nations, the Gentiles. But he's, the psalmist here exhorts all of the Gentiles to laud God, to praise God, to give Him glory and honor and thanksgiving. Why? Because of His great merciful kindness that He has shown to all peoples. And then finally, the fourth passage comes from the prophets. Isaiah 11, verse 10, where we see in verse 12 of chapter of Romans 15. And he even gives, as Isaiah says, and again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall have hope. Now, if you know Isaiah, chapter 11 is famous because that's that passage that talks about the, the branch that comes up from the root of Jesse. So Jesse, okay, anybody know who Jesse is? What's that? Yes, he is a descendant of Ruth, right. But he's also the father of? David, right. That's David's pop. It's his papa, <laughs> Right, So Jesse is David's dad. And Jesse, when, when it says the stump or the, the root of Jesse, see, that would be the line of the kings. Now, because of their apostasy, Israel was cut off. So that tree was cut. And all you have is left is the stump. right? But Isaiah is prophesying. It's like, out of that stump will come a righteous branch. The son of David. The, you know, the root, the, this root 
from the, the, the stump of Jesse will come up and this branch shall grow out of his roots. And this branch is, Jesse, this, this branch is not David. It is, Jesse, is Jesus, David's greater son, who will rule the nations here. The Gentiles shall, shall uh, come and he will rule over the Gentiles. This branch shall be sought after by all of the nations. And he will rule them. And in that person, in him, all of the nations will have hope. Will have hope. So again, we have testimony from every part of the Old Testament. The law, the writing, the prophets. And they all attest that the Gentiles were to be included with the people of God in praising Him and giving Him their thanks. Now bringing it back to our context, if this has been God's plan from all along, then how can we in the church be against this, right? So, bringing it back into context of Romans 14 and 15, right? So you've got people in the church arguing and fighting over silly little things, and they start to divide, and God is saying, look, I am welcoming the Gentiles into the people of God. If I am doing that, how can you in the body of Christ separate that which God is bringing together? Right? Think of that, you know, that, that line you say in the marriage vows. Right? What God has brought together, what God has joined together, let no man what? tear asunder or separate. Praising God is not exclusively a Jewish thing, nor is being in the people of God exclusively a Jewish thing. Thus, the, the application for us in, the, in this church here and for us here in the 21st century is to not let us non-essential things get in the way of praising God and bringing glory to God and His holy name by being united in one purpose together. Now Paul closes our passage and again the main body of Romans with a benediction in verse 13 where we read here, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here now, Paul has given us 15 whole chapters, right? A whole letter of exhortation, a whole letter of, of explaining and expositing the gospel of Jesus Christ, how we are saved from our fallen state, how all of us are under the weight of sin, how all of us are under the judgment of sin, yet he gives Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for that sin, to pay the penalty for that sin. So we are then justified by God's grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. And now because we are justified, we have access to God. God gives us His Holy Spirit. He plants His Holy Spirit in us. So now we live by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now is sanctifying us, helping us to put off the body of sin, helping us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we wait the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ who will then glorify us. That's the promise of the future. And until that happens, we are to live as living sacrifices of thanksgiving. So how ought we to live until Christ returns? We are to live lives of thankful obedience to Christ. Being a living sacrifice to Christ for His goodness, for His mercies. And how the church, the body of Christ, is to live in loving harmony with one another. Welcoming each other as Christ has welcomed us. So then it is fitting now to close us off with this section here, this little benediction, this good word to us, which is in the form of a prayer, right? Now may the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Now note here first how Paul refers to God as the God of hope. Now God has many titles. He's got many names. He's known by many many, uh, titles and phrases and names. But this one is particularly poignant. He is the God of hope. Especially what Paul said, considering what Paul said in verse 4 of chapter 15, where he says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So God left us a witness so that as we read the Scriptures, as we see the examples of the people in the Old Testament, how they have lived, and how those lessons are poignant for us, then we read this and we may have hope. Now God is the God of hope. In fact, considering all those Old Testament passages we just looked at in verses 9-12 through from the Psalms and from Deuteronomy and from the prophet Isaiah that call on the Gentiles to what? To rejoice and praise God for in Him the Gentiles shall have what? Hope. Now, I've probably said this before, but hope as it is defined in the Bible is not like we define hope in the world. Right uh, Up until 2016, being a, a hopeful Cubs fan, the, our mantra every year after the Cubs would sort of fail in June, right? they would look good in April and May, then they would have the June swoon, and they would fall apart, and they would end up in fifth place or sixth place or whatever place. And then we would say to one another as the season ended, well, there's always next year. right? Hope springs eternal. Next year will be better. That's not biblical hope, okay? That is not biblical hope. We don't sit here and say, well, maybe Christ will return, maybe He won't. Let's just hope He will because that will be better for us. No. Biblical hope is a confident expectation in the promises of God. God promises us things and He delivers on those things. How do we know that? Because we have 66 books in the Bible that tell us God has promised us things and He has delivered on those promises. Jesus Christ is proof that our hope is not in vain. We just looked at this earlier. Jesus Christ came as a minister, as a servant to, this, to, the, to the Jewish people as their promised Messiah. The, the one who was promised to come came in the fullness of time. Jesus Christ is proof. That's why Paul prays that God will fill us with joy and peace in believing. So as we grow in our faith, then we also grow in our joy and peace. And again, true biblical joy, true biblical peace is not as the world defines it. Because the world defines joy and the world defines peace based on outward circumstances, right? I'm joyful because things are going well in my life. I have peace because there's no conflict in my life. That's not how the Bible defines joy. That's not how the Bible defines peace. Joy and peace are are objective realities in Christ Jesus. We have joy because Christ came in the fullness of time and died for our sins. We have peace because God t- or Jesus took the wrath of God upon Himself and thus brings us peace. It's a peace and a joy that are not based on any outward circumstances. Our world can be falling apart, yet we can still have joy and peace in Christ because of the hope that He gives us. And it's to those who believe, right? True biblical joy and peace are not dependent on outward circumstances, but on believing in Christ and the promises that God has 
has fulfilled in him. And it's not just believing, but believing in the God of hope, the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and the one who will also raise us from the dead when Christ returns. And then notice, too, at the end here, it says that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we may abound in this hope, that we may sort of overflow in this hope. And it's the Holy Spirit. What does He do in us? What does He do for us? The Holy Spirit takes the finished work of Christ and applies it to our lives. The Holy Spirit bears witness with us that we too are children of God, right? You remember that from Romans 8? The Spirit gives us the right to cry out, Abba, Father. He gives us the right to be called children of God. And as we saw at the end of Romans 8, right, it's the Holy Spirit who brings us through to the end, who preserves us firm in our faith until the end. So when believers are filled with peace and joy and abounding in hope, there will be little opportunity to worry about all these little things that Paul was talking about that you should not split the church over. Right? When you are filled with joy, when you are filled with peace, when you are confidently expecting the return of Christ, these little things is, is kind of fall away. They kind of fall away. And we are able then to rejoice and abound in hope.